taking a look inside the lives and minds of some of the world's most inspiring thought leaders. Every single record that he pushes or if I push it, it's going to be like better because we have to try better and we have to try every time more and more. And this is the fun thing about it. People living inspiring lives and motivating others. Be a little bit scared makes you humble, makes you be much more aware what risk can do with you on the mountain or bad decisions can do on the mountain. If you are not scared at all, something is wrong. Brought to you by Athletic Greens. This is the Inspiring Lives Podcast with Gary Birtwistle. I'm Gary Birtwistle and welcome to the Inspiring Lives Podcast, a show that looks inside the minds of some of the world's foremost thought leaders to discover their recipe for success. And this week we head to the high mountains for a fascinating discussion on FKTs. One of the reasons this show has become so popular is because of the high caliber and the diversity of guests, people from all walks. So welcome to the Inspiring Loves Podcast, brought to you by the most complete supplement for a better you, Athletic Greens. Carl Egloff is a Swiss Ecuadorian athlete, mountaineer, cyclist, and mountain guide who was best known for his speed ascents of the highest mountains in the world, including the Seven Summits. In this episode, we're venturing into the world of FKTs, fastest known times for mountain ascents, alpine traverses, and similar feats. Carl Egloff is a mountain guide who was virtually unknown outside his home in Ecuador until 2014, when he set the FKT for running up and down Kilimanjaro in Africa. Now, the previous record was held by a legend of the sport, Kilian Journay. And since that time, Carl has broken two more records of Kilian's, including the recent ascent and descent record on the mountain of Denali. Carl, it's a great honor. Welcome to the Inspiring Loves podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's so nice to to talk to you on the other side of the world. You are uh, <laughs> in Australia and here I'm sitting in Ecuador. <laughs> this is uh, amazing. You you have built your reputation for speed ascents of high mountains, including the Seven Summits. Why why have you combined climbing and speed running? It's an it's an it's an odd thing to combine. Why did you do that? <laughs> well, it's a big coincidence in my life. It's not that I planned to do that. <laughs> I guess when I was 15 and people talked to me, uh, there, there are some crazy people running up the mountains, I would have laughed. And um, actually everything came together. I, I'm a son of a mountain uh, guide here in Ecuador. Uh, I have uh, Swiss roots. I grew up with uh, both cultures here in Ecuador. And my father uh, made his living actually by guiding on the weekends. So he took me from very early age up to the mountains. I don't even remember when when I started climbing the first time. And uh, my father always said, and do never run on the mountains, do never put crampons on and try to be faster than your clients and they're going to run away and they're never going to come as and call us back and everything. So I grew up the very traditional way to, to, to climb the mountains. And uh, I, I was uh, starting to guide in Kilimanjaro uh, five years ago. And when I was there, I had some spare time, and on that spare time, I used to to go jogging up to the summit and down. So uh, it was quite uh, a funny story behind because um, people working on Kilimanjaro uh, looked at me like very weird, and they said, "Like we have never seen someone jogging up to the summit here in Kilimanjaro." 
And I said, well, I used to do that in Ecuador while my father was climbing the mountains. So uh, on the on, uh, waiting on the refuge until he came back, uh, it was a uh, free time for me as a child. So uh, I did that when my clients were sleeping in Kilimanjaro and I summited a couple of times. And then when I returned to Switzerland, my boss said, Carl, we heard that you climbed like in the afternoon a fast the Kilimanjaro. And on the way back, you returned to the hut, took your clients up to the summit again. And I said, yeah, but it was my spare time. I'm, I'm, I hope I don't lose my job. And, they, and then he said, no, no, it's just amazing. And we would like to sponsor you to try to break the speed record. And this was the first time ever I heard about this word. And I've never kn knew anything about records and record holders and nothing. So everything became like a huge coincidence. I started to train. And uh, after a while, I came to Kilimanjaro back, trained and hoping to make a good time. And then I heard about Kilian Jornet and I said, wow, this is uh, an amazing athlete. I've never heard from him before. And then uh, I really said, okay, this is, this is my shot. This is my opportunity. I, I should go. I should try. And then I, I broke Kilian's record and everything began to roll. And I, I was not conscious uh, what was going uh, after it and how big it was and uh, how everything came together later on with the seven summits. Did you always climb at speed, Carl? Was even when you were first starting out on Kilimanjaro, were you were you intentionally going at speed, or were you just climbing quickly? I think there's a difference in the psychology of it. Were you intentionally trying to get up to the top as quick as possible, or were you just climbing? You were just faster than others. No, definitely, definitely. I started guiding very early here in Ecuador and and worldwide, and. While I was guiding, I was always going as slow as possible with my clients. But in my spare time, I always was trying to break my best time, like my personal best. And I did not know there were there were really world record holders and, and times to beat. So I, I was doing always my best effort to be as fast as possible. But later on, I've noticed that there were records to break. Your, you mentioned your father, Charlie, who, as you said, is a renowned Swiss mountaineer in Ecuador. When he took you along to those expeditions, being in the mountains, what do you remember? What did the mountains bring to you as a child? Well, my father was um, not a typical father. And normally fathers, they are very, very uh, skeptical with the kids. Uh, don't climb this, you can fall. Uh, don't go there, you can, you can die. And my father was completely the opposite. He said, like, you should go up there if you want to be a guide one day. And I said, yeah, but I didn't bring my harness with me. And he said, like, you should anyway, because if you want to be a guide, you need to climb this and you have to be fast here and you have to be like carrying a lot. So I was always like uh, growing up with challenges with my father. And um, he took me since I was a child to the mountain. And what I remember is the, the climbers those days, I'm talking about the 80s and the 90s, they were like uh, different climbers that today. They were carrying everything up to the hut. They were taking so much food to the mountain. The gear was much heavier. And we were taking a lot of material up to the, to the hut, uh, always expecting like one or two or three days uh, waiting for the perfect day. And today, everyone is like climbing the very light way, trying to be like uh, as, as less as possible on the mountain. So I'm, I'm happy I grew up with this traditional way of climbing because my father uh, showed me since, uh, since very early to carry a lot. And uh, probably this is why I have a, 
a problematic back right now, but <laughs> I started to, to <laughs> carry a lot of stuff since I was 12 or 13. He said, like, we have to carry this and carry there, uh, that to the hut. And probably if the weather is not good, we have to stay another day. So please carry this too. And on the end, I grew up that way. Do you think, Carl, when you reflect back on that time, when you were starting out as a child, do you think your father and the, the, the means by which people climbed at that time, did that embed into you a sense of resilience and grit? Do you think that actually embedded this, this, this embracing hardship? I think so, yes. Unconsciously, I think yes, because um, I grew up with challenges and we did, nobody here in Ecuador did know about these records of Kilian and the, the guys who did that before and all these challenges of going as fast as possible from the refuge to the hut. But unconsciously, my father, even in his early ages, he always was writing down his best time to the summit. And he said, like, always here in our table, like I did three hours up there, normal clients do it within six hours. And he was like, ah, I'm fast and I'm strong. And I grew up with that. And um, it's funny because... When I did my very first uh, important world record, which was here, Cotopaxi, here in Ecuador, I came home and I remember I said to my father, Father, I did a, a new world record going up and down in Cotopaxi. And he said, and what do you feel right now? You are a better man. You, you feel much more better than the others. And I said, no, I just wanted to say that I did an amazing time. And he said, like, this is not good. No, no one... Uh, is willing right now to climb with you the mountains because it's you're going to scare every client right now with that times. And I said, yeah, but it's good for other things. And he said, there's nothing good. So actually it was, uh, it was uh, frustrating for me because I thought it's going to be like a big, cute news at home and it wasn't. But I grew up with these critics and uh, this made me always like be very, very conscious what I'm doing. And today he's one of my biggest fans and he's always... Uh, googling what I'm, what's next and which is the next mountain and how is it done and where is it done. And actually, it's kind of um, a funny story behind. From that, Carl, do you take a sense of humility in the fact that your father pushed you, had you do things the hard way, you built this resilience and grit, yet was always getting you to keep your feet on the ground? Because I've heard you talk about what you've done, what you've achieved, but you talk about it in a matter of fact sort of manner. It's not a skiting or look at me. Was that humility sort of bred into you by your father, do you think, back in those days? I'm sure I'm sure about that because it doesn't make you a better human being if you are fast on the mountains. On the end of, of the of the day, you are good good as a climber, but probably you are not good as another thing. So for me, always it's like the entire thing. If you are a good father, if you're a good human being, you're good to the others. If you are a runner, if you are Whatever you're doing in life, you have to do it like the good way. And um, on the end, these are just opportunities. On the end, everyone is comparing me with Killian, for example. It's like you beat him here and you beat it there. This is there. Killian is an athlete. He's like a, a global rock star on 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 running. So I'm not comparing myself as a as a runner uh, with him because he's a much better runner. But I grew up with the mountains and I'm used to the altitude. But it doesn't make me better athlete and a better climber than him. I was just lucky that a lot of mountains are very high in altitude, and since then I started to figure out that if I wanna if I wanna do the very important records like Everest and Denali and all those, I have to 
really prepare myself much better, not just the, the way here I did it in Ecuador before. I, I needed a trainer. I needed everything to do it. So I, I always try to be uh, like very conscious what I'm doing and trying to, to be uh, a better athlete every day. And a better athlete involves, in my, in my opinion, I'm 38. I'm not 20 anymore. So it's not the results. It's the global thing. It's like what you, what you show your kids, what you do at home. How do you train? How you do you balance your marriage and everything? This is like a good athlete on the end of the day. Let's talk about Killian just for a second because there's a video of you on YouTube that talks about mm-hmm. the fact that you contacted Killian after you broke his record for the ascent mm-hmm. of Kilimanjaro. You said, hey, let's meet up. And he said, great idea. And there is this astonishing video of you like two mountain goats racing up and across these incredibly (laughs) huge mountains. What I'm interested in, Carl, is you do carry this huge amount of humility, yet on that mountain in that video, it looked like you were out to smash him. Like you looked like the two of you were going and you were not going to be beaten by Killian in that session on film. And in fact, somebody a punter who actually saw the video made that comment in the comment section on YouTube. Take me to that day. Was there a sense where you were out to prove something against Killian? What what was going on that day? It's a funny story behind everything because after I did Akonkawa uh, speed record and uh, this was February 2015, I decided to to travel to Europe and uh, and go to this amazing place called Chamonix uh, and uh, why not contact Killian, the big star and uh, the guy who I was uh, reading on magazines and I thought he's not going to contact me anyway. And I wrote him an email and he wrote me back and he said, like, please let me know when you are here. This is my phone number. It would be great to meet you. And I, th- I thought, wow, this is amazing. Probably going to really meet. And uh, this is what, what how everything came together. And the funny story about this is that Kilian uh, had a, a very, very tough days before. He was like doing photo shootings and uh, training a lot. So I wasn't able the three first days that I was there to meet him. And then finally, exactly if, uh, on the video, uh, it was the first time I saw him because uh, the producers of this video wanted it to make it really, really uh, as real as possible. So they said, you cannot meet before they put him the camera on, they put my camera on. And then uh, the, the, t- the first time you see in the video that we hug each other is because it was the re- very first time. After the video, uh, we met a couple of times and we, we trained together. And actually, uh, we run up to, to the summit of, of Mont Blanc together as a rope team. And this, it, this was for me like a very nice experience. And this was the fir- very first time I could really like test myself how how Killian was and how he moved on the mountain and, and where he was very fast and, and everything. And I was a- able also to, to run up his favorite mountain because he, he was living those days in Chamonix. So he was climbing Mont Blanc almost every week. So he knew every single corner of the mountain and it was a really nice experience. And the most, the, the, well, the nicest experience I had is like he treated me like we would know each other since since the childhood, and I was very thankful. He, we went home, and I was renting a house there. And he went to our house. We had dinner together, and it was a kind of a, 
a message that this is a gentleman job and uh, a gentleman sport and there is no no rivality behind on the end i learn a lot about his his uh, achievements and what he has done and i wrote i, I write everything down uh, what time he started what time uh, did he push up to the summit and uh, everything and because uh, this is this sport is like is uh, you have to know a lot of information before trying to 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 beat a a, a speed record. You have to know a lot of things. Uh, meet you uh, what what time did he started? So we we became friends and we saw each other this year in Segama before the race in uh, in Spain. And I said to him, Kilian, I'm going in a couple of weeks again to Denali. And his reaction was. This is cool. I wish you the best. And uh, if you need any information, I have a couple of friends probably summiting these days and they will have like fresh information for you. So on the end, people believe it's like he wished me the, the worst thing and it's exactly the opposite. On the end, I wish that he's still alive for a long time. And um, every single record that he pushes or if I push it, it's going to be like better because we have to try better and we have to try uh, every time more and more and this is the fun thing about it it's interesting if we talk about Denali for a second you said there was a point on Denali where you had to change your crampons on your shoes to help you get better grip you said I went for the good gear because you don't want to take any risk because the comment you made was I've got a child at home so I went for the good gear and put on these crampons uh-huh. yet anyone who sees you with Killian on the mountaintop racing with each other across these hair-string mountains up and down and these dramatic falls with nothing connecting you would say that you take a huge amount of risk, yet you put those crampons on on Denali saying, oh, I better put the good gear on because I don't want to take a risk. It kind of in my mind left me uncertain about how you determine what is risk because looking at the, the, the race with Killian when you were training together, that was hugely risky. Yet, when you're climbing on Denali, you're putting on gear because you don't want to take a risk. How do you see risk? Well, it's a relative question, but it's a good question because on the end, on the end, risk is. Uh, it's for example, if you are a good climber and you are training on a on a level of fourteen or fifteeners, but on on a record day you are climbing a sixteener. Definitely, you are risking because it's uh, much, much, much higher than your comfort zone. And on the end, these speed records are exactly the same. If I'm training all the time on the mountain, on a certain speed, on a certain temperature, on a certain glacier conditions, and on the day of the record, everything is the opposite. I'm, I'm already risking before starting. So uh, on Denali, for me, was absolutely clear that the the most dangerous thing about Denali. Is not the terrain. It's not the conditions. It's uh, really the temperature. Because uh, I'm an Ecuadorian. I live here almost every every all year in summer. So for me, uh, having this very tough wind conditions and very cold temperatures up on the summit can be deadly or can be right, right really dangerous for my for my toes. So what I tried is like to be as fast as possible on those sections on the mountain that I was not risking anything about. Uh, weather conditions on the end you are running so light that you are taking just a very minimum with you and this makes you already like a risky mountain climber because you don't have this two or three layers extra on your back 
probably you have just one more layer and nothing else. And um, this risk, definitely, if you are uh, putting the risk in a video, everything looks like risky for those who are not used to this terrain. And um, for example, if, if I see a video of someone climbing uh, any wall, it's already a lot of risk behind. And uh, for us on Chamonix, we had a lot of fun together, but I think that we, we, we were not risking too much. Uh, we were having fun, we were focused, we were doing our best performance, but we are not outside our comfort zone. Outside of, of our comfort zone was, for example, this year when I did the south wall of Aconcagua, um, conditions were so, so tough. Then on the end, we were not even able to film. On the end, I had a frostbite of third level. I had uh, we came I we came out of, of the wall scared. Um, I lost a lot of weight, and on the end, a week later, we were sitting together after the south wall of Aconcagua, and we were looking to each other, my my uh, teammate and me, and we said like, it was way too risky. This is definitely not our comfort zone, and it was uh, far far too much. And on the end, you are scared and you are not even enjoying it anymore. So many people would say that growth comes from being uncomfortable. Growth comes from being outside your comfort zone. How do mm-hmm. you frame getting outside your comfort zone to being too risky? Where you said, this is outside our comfort zone, yet that's where the growth comes from for most people in today's vernacular around self-improvement. How do you then balance up enough comfort versus getting outside your comfort zone, but then with what you do being too risky? This is a great question because on the end, your comfort zone is what you are used to doing. Uh, this can be already uh, uh, uncomfortable if you are if you are training every day, if you are training too hard, if you are training uh, on very cold temperatures, if you are training on high altitude, uh, but you are still trying to control it. On the end, uh, what I want the most is to suffer while I'm training. And I'm definitely going way out of my comfort zone when I'm training, when I'm spending nights and nights and nights on altitude and training every day and don't even recover that much because I'm sleeping on, on huts. But on, the, on, a, on a speed ascent, on an FKT, I really want to be as close as possible to my comfort zone because you never know what can happen. I give you an explanation. When I did Elbrus, I was climbing up the mountain and I had four places where I I had water and uh, something to drink where I left behind. And when I was running up the mountain, everything got frozen. I didn't have anything, not, not food, no drink, no nothing. Everything was completely frozen. And on the end, you plan everything on detail and everything uh, started to go bad that day. And, and then I had to deal with cramps. I had to deal with, with, uh, with heat, uh, my body, my, 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 my mind. My, I had a lot of headache and um, I made it to, to, the, to the lower section of the mountain. I was happy that Elbrus is, is not that, it's not a big distance. But if something similar would have happened on Denali, probably I would have, I, I would have had to give up, because um, there you cannot uh, run thirty miles with with cramps and with problems and your headache and 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 you you're risking far too much. So this is what I'm talking about. Um, 
about comfort zone on an FKT. Definitely, you are giving everything. You're trying to be as fast as possible and you're suffering all the time. But I think that you still can control what you're doing. That's a great answer. Let's turn to the future. I know Everest is on your plans. And in 2019, there are a lot of deaths from people on Everest who were climbing to the summit who got caught in what they reported as being congestion. Mm -hmm. With your plans to go for the FKT on Everest, does congestion feature in your planning? How do you you get around it? (laughs) This is the same question I'm asking myself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, you always try to avoid crowds, always, always, always. Sounds very easy, but it isn't. Uh, on Denali, when I tried the speed record, I had 350 climbers moving from one camp to the other or summiting on that day because it was by far the best day of the season. So everyone tried to move that day. On the end, I had to overpass 350 on the way up and 350 on the way down. And um, you just don't want to lose that much energy because every time you step on the side of the path, you just lose a lot of energy and you lose much more energy if those people are moving so so slow because um, probably it's it's difficult if you communicate if you if you gel and you say like i'm gonna pass and they move around sometimes it's perfect sometimes they are very friendly but on the other side they can be climbers and i understand they are on the very limit they are not able to move so on the end it's my responsibility as an fkt runner to to make their trip safe as possible. So I, I, I'm the one who has to move on the side and I'm the one who has to, to look for a new path. So we planned on Denali, like exactly what time are those climbers reaching the most um, challenging part of Denali. On this, uh, talking about Denali would be like the autobahn where the fixed ropes are. We said they got to be like there at 8 15, 8, 20, the first climber. So we have to be five minutes before there. So this is how we planned exactly the time we were starting. And we really made it one minute before the first climber arrived to the autobahn. So I had completely nobody on the autobahn. And this made my ascent as, as safe as possible. On the way down, I overtook everyone on the way down and they were not reaching the fixed ropes neither because they were halfway through. So on the end, everything has to do with planification and a little bit of luck, of course. Uh, On Everest, how I want to avoid this? This is a good question because on Everest, everything is different. On Everest, uh, people cannot move uh, for hours, not even a a few feet. So I'm trying to summit probably those days they are not planning to summit. Probably it could be in autumn or probably it could be like um, in, a, in, in the afternoon, in a very late afternoon or uh, in certain time of the, day, of the day that probably you won't have that many people. Do you, you obviously knew Denali, you'd, you'd mapped it out so you could visualise the climb do you ever spend your time visualizing what you're about to do? And do you spend time visualizing what might happen and visualizing yourself getting around that problem? Yes, yes. Um, I'm, uh, I'm aware of, of all the risks. I'm aware of everything that can happen. And uh, I'm, I'm mentally, I prepare for it. 
And um, I'm not lying to you if sometimes you doubt about yourself. You ask yourself, is like, this is uh, not the perfect day. Something could happen today. Or um, I don't feel 100% today. Or the media, they told that uh, the storm can come in at 2, 3 p.m. And probably it's not the perfect day. But on the same time, you check to the to the uh, to the meteor, and you can see that the the next days it will be worse. And um, you always analyze, and you need someone with your team sometimes to take these decisions. And uh, I, I always try to to travel with my with my teammate Nicolas, and Nicolas is a, a very very renamed uh, mountain guide here in Ecuador. He's uh, the one in charge of of uh, guiding or or showing how to guide new guides. So actually he's an, an instructor. And um, we always analyze everything. Like, this is okay for today. The meteor is going to hold. Um, you are probably uh, 60% today. and uh, But tomorrow you will be 50 because uh, you are not sleeping well. You're not eating well. And on the end, you have to put all the cards on the table and see like, okay, for tomorrow, things could look good. Probably they don't look perfect. And you have to deal with, with those things on your hat. Sometimes you are not sleeping one or two or even three nights before because you are scared. But I think this is part of the game. I think to be a little bit scared uh, makes you humble, makes you uh, be much more aware what risk can do with you on the mountain or bad decisions can do on the mountain. If, if you don't have, if you are not scared at all, uh, something is wrong. Even if I'm guiding I, I, if I have this, this uh, little thing in my head that c- could happen, this is good because it makes you much more human. Just say you have a training day ahead of you tomorrow, Carl. You wake up in the morning and it's, it's raining, perhaps it's snowing, it's wet, it's freezing cold, it's really windy. It's just not a nice day to go training. How, what's the dialogue in your mind? How do you approach a day where you don't want to go training but you know you probably should? It's a great question because it's the same question what you ask in life. If you are not going through good things and how do you wake up and, and do things happen and, uh, or how do, you, how do you, I don't know, like uh, overtake these bad moments in life? And if, of course, if I'm training or if I want to climb a mountain in a training day and, and uh, weather and even myself, if I'm feeling sick, for example, I try to listen a lot to my, of, to my body. On the end, a bad training day can bring you to bed for a couple of days or weeks. Uh, if you get, uh, I don't know, a flu, uh, can, can uh, get things worse. So on the end, you have to listen a lot about your body. But of course, there are days that you have to train with bad conditions because this is exactly what you're looking for in the best in the worst scenario on a mountain, for example, uh, the jet stream that you have on Denali, I don't have any place in Ecuador I can train for. This 50, 60, 70 miles of wind uh, on the on the on the summit—it's uh, something that you are you cannot train it with that temperatures here in Ecuador. So this is definitely what I wanted when I was training for Denali. Is like willing to to train in those days that it was really windy, that it was really cold, that the storm was coming in because I thought, okay, probably this is going to help me on my mind if something similar is happening on the Nali. And exactly this is what happened. When we were reaching the summit on, an FKT, on the FKT day, uh, it, the, my, the wind was so strong that 
90% of the climbers turned around that day. And uh, I, we just we just took the next layer and the next layer and the next layer. And we said, like, everything is on your mind. Close your eyes and keep going. And uh, on the end, we made the summit and it cleared up. It was amazing. For a few minutes, no wind, just beautiful, sunny. And on the end, this was the answer of your question. Sometimes you have to go through bad things. So the sun is coming up later on. That's a good answer. <laughs> With all the records you've set, Carl, all the training you do, it seems it's, it's a solo endeavor for you. You need to spend a lot of time by yourself. You race on these FKTs. It's a solo endeavor. Is solitude and being by yourself an important part of Carl's DNA? Yes. Uh, something that it's very, very difficult for me, it's to spend time alone on the mountain and uh, to, to climb the mountain in solo. Um, I'm a family man. I'm actually someone who is always planning with my family to do next, next uh, things in life. And something that I was really, really missing is the communication on Denali while I was climbing because you, you can have a sat phone, but you cannot phone. Uh, because there are not enough satellites to connect your phone call. And um, the first human being to connect after the, the, the world record was my wife and trying always every day to, to chat and to, to talk to her at night. While I'm, when I'm running up on the mountain, I think everything, like nothing can go wrong today because I want to go home. I, I want to be a good daddy. I promise my son to come uh, home soon. And it, this is what life makes it uh, even more and more difficult if you're if you have kids and if they are growing, if they are asking for you, if they are missing you. So um, this is what holds me to be like all year round traveling for climbing and to speed up. On the end, what we do at home is like we we put all the cards on on the table and we say that this is the next goal and this is the next goal. In between, we will be spending holidays together. In between, we will be working for our for my travel agency. I will be like a normal father to be like as much as possible here at home to have these routines with my son to take him to the to the kindergarten and back and to feed my kids uh, here at home and to bring them to bed and on the end to be like a normal daddy and when I'm going out for a project I really focus on those projects that the acclimatization I can do here in Ecuador and when I'm going out I just go for it as fast as possible try to spend as less time as possible on the mountain and be as safe as possible. Just to f finish this up here, Carl, when I hear people interview you, I've seen stories about you around the world. Invariably, people say you came from nowhere. People all knew Killian, but this Carl guy came from nowhere. Why have you been so successful? When you look at yourself and analyse yourself with the, all the humility you carry... Why do you think Carl has been so successful to break so many records of a living legend like Killian? What do you put that down to? Well, it's a nice question. And um, on the end, I'm, I'm, I'm a lucky man because um, I grew up here in Ecuador. I was a mountain, uh, uh, mountain biker professional for eight years. I was racing for my country. I was uh, always training a lot. Um, I was traveling a lot for the mountain bike national team. But I... I was never more than an average uh, mountain biker, but I was always uh, very good on climbing mountains. I was always very strong climbing mountains since I was a kid. This is why my father always pulled back and he said, like, slow down. So slow down, child, because I don't want you to die on the mountain. 
but uh, you you will have your time one day to run up. And um, everything came together with this Kilimanjaro trip that I told you. And uh, after seeing what Kilian has achieved, I said, yeah, I should risk it and uh, train for that and probably just go day by day. The next one would be Aconcagua. And Aconcagua was a mountain I already knew uh, even much better than Kilian because I, I was guiding like my sixth or seventh season those days. So I knew that mountain very good. And I said, if this was a coincidence on Kilimanjaro, I should go for the next one. And on Kilimanjaro, and after Aconcagua, I was 57 minutes, almost an hour faster than Kilian. And then I started really to believe that, okay, I have something into myself that I never knew about it. I never knew that I can run. I never knew that I'm so fast on the mountains. So try to forget Killian. Killian is like the superhero that nobody can touch. And on the end, it's like a barrier that you put in front of you. And uh, not talking even bad about him because he's a superstar, but it's kind of you put your limits. And on the end, I said, okay, if I broke Killian's record in Nakonkawa, uh, next time I'm going to break my own record. And on the end, this is exactly how training is. On the end, it's like in Strava, you are so good and you are first. So next day, try to beat your same record and be better on that. And uh, I, I think that I, I came from a country which is pretty unknown in sports. And this is why I had this chance to, to fly with this success. I'm sure if I would have come from the same town as Kilian, things would have been different. I'm sure if, if Kilian wouldn't exist, things would be different because Killian is the barrier. Killian is like the guy who nobody can beat. And this is how it got interest. Media got interested when they heard like, there is a guy, I don't know his name, but there's a guy who broke Killian's record. And this is, this is how everything is like came, coming together. You need a story to write another story. And this is the, the funny thing about it. I'm, I think this is I'm a coincidence on Kilian's career and I'm a coincidence on this sport and I took this chance and I developed this chance and I'm working hard that this chance uh, is going to complete the seven summits. Got a question for you. Last question to finish this up because I'm very conscious of your time, Carl. I see the videos of you on the mountains and you are going at pace and you race in the FKTs at pace and I suspect during that time, you have to be very conscious of where your next foot is going to in order to keep a firm hold of the ground when you're racing. Do you ever still just go to a mountain to be on a mountain and not race? But do you enjoy what the mountain brings to you to reminisce about your childhood, your dad? Do you ever just climb to climb and enjoy the surroundings? Or are you the sort of person where if there's a mountain in front of you, then it's on? No, no, actually, absolutely not, because um, I'm happy. I'm really happy that I grew up with this traditional way of climbing. This is what a lot of runners um, do not do. They start to run, and then suddenly they say, well, if I can run fast here uh, on the streets, why not climbing up the mountain as fast as possible? And you lose this connection to the mountain, this, this breathing on the mountain, this tradition that something can go get wrong, weather can change, things can get heavy. And uh, I'm, I'm a mountain guide and I'm still a mountain guide because I think that I learned these values of helping others to summit, to helping 
motivating other people to, for example, three weeks ago, I was leading an, uh, a huge expedition of amputees from the U.S., uh, climbing Cotopaxi up and down in almost 20 hours, what I do in a, an hour and a half. And um, just trying myself to be very patient and trying to give my best as a human to help others to achieve. And this is kind of the, the things that, that, that makes me humble because in the end, if I would be just training, going for the FKTs, I would not compare uh, those, those days that I'm really, really having fun on the month and just walking. And today, as a father, I enjoy almost uh, a lot when I'm climbing with my child on my back going very easy <laughs> and just enjoying explaining this is this tree this is this uh, uh bird and um trying to show him why why i love the mountain and not because he mm. watches me on television and he sees like all these pictures carl running up the mountains this is the way we are going to the mountains no this is the way i i do the projects but on my 99 percent of the days i try to be like very connected to the mountain so interesting, isn't it? That, that's just a beautiful answer for us to, to teach our children what we love about what we do. Carl, this is, I find you a fascinating guy. I think it's so unusual to get an insight into someone who's doing something as extreme, as extreme as you do at the level you do with what you're achieving up against some monumental competition. But it sounds like you compete with yourself more than others. And uh, I just think this is a, such a, a great a great story for inspiring lives to show the possibilities how all of this came out of something that you were you were born to as a child and loved and you've continued to push yourself in and out of your comfort zone it's um it's great thank you so much for your time carl it's been a real pleasure speaking with you hearing a story and i hope we can keep in touch as you continue your project because you've got some more big mountains in front of you Thank you. Thank you so much for your nice and kind words. It's a huge privilege for me. And thank you for the opportunity to talk to the other side of the world that I, I'm, I have on my bucket list one day to visit Australia. Um, it's just a huge pleasure. And, and being so such, a, such an incredible good interviewer, I was reading to your website. It's amazing what you have achieved. So thank you on the other side too for this opportunity and i'm really really sure we're gonna keep in touch i promise to uh, to get better in my english and uh, <laughs> to get to know you one day in person <laughs> cal we uh, we're going to follow your adventures when is the next climb in your project how far away is that do you think well right now uh i i uh shut my season off after Pikes Peak, Colorado. This was uh, late August, and right now I'm starting to build again. So uh, the next the next FKT planet will be Karsten Pyramid in Indonesia, which is your continent, and uh, this is planned to be done on, on early 2020. So probably in January, I will be traveling to Indonesia to try Karsten's Pyramid as fast as possible, and uh, on February I'm going to guide uh, different expeditions on Aconcagua, to use it also as a training. And um, on autumn of, two, of 2020, I'm probably heading for my first time to Himalaya. Uh, it looks like, Carl, why did you wait so much? Because it's very expensive. This is the only question. I don't see only answer yeah. that I have. 
yeah. Himalaya yeah. is yeah. very expensive. So uh, on the end, probably it looks like we will have a chance to to visit uh, on autumn to 2020 for the first time in Himalaya. And of course, I will try to use this chance to to, to make an FKT in a in a and in, in, in Himalaya. I don't want to name anyone because I'm still checking which one. Manaslu, Choyu, I don't know which one. Uh, and this as a training for Everest approach, which will be 2021 or 2022. This is kind of the, the next goals to come. If people want to follow all these adventures to check out what you've done, where you're at now and what you're about to do, where is the best hub for people to learn more about Carl? Well, thank you so much for, for mentioning it. Well, in Instagram, Twitter and, and Facebook, you can find me, Carl Egloff. And um, I will be very pleased to answer you. If I have a website also, carlegloff.com. Uh, and um, I'm really, really happy to, to have new followers and to keep up with the updates and making my trainings viral and put it on social media so you can follow me. Carl, it's been a real privilege. Thank you for joining us on Inspiring Lives. It's, uh, it's been great, man. We'll, we'll keep in touch with you. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. Thanks so much. Um, hugs to everyone. Bye-bye. So that's today's show. There are loads more incredible guests in the weeks ahead on the Inspiring Loves podcast. All the show notes will be at athleticgreens.com. In the weeks ahead, plenty more outstanding performers who share their recipe for success of how we can live our own inspiring lives. The Inspiring Lives podcast brought to you by Athletic Greens. New episodes out every other Monday morning. Tune in and subscribe on the Apple Podcasts app or your favorite podcast platform.